Well, good day, everybody. It's uh, great to be with you again tonight and to be uh, getting into God's Word with one another, looking at Ephesians. Uh, before we do that, I just wanted to um, uh, just uh, bring to your attention something that you may or may have heard this week. Hopefully you've managed to see the video that Kurt and Kelly Peters put out this week. But if not, let me just bring you up to speed. Uh, after almost uh, 17 and a half years of ministry with us at Wild Street and St. Matthew's, uh, Kurt will be finishing his full-time ministry with us at the end of the year. Uh, it's been a long time. It's been great uh, to have them with us, and it's very sad uh, that that won't be continuing. But uh, he will continue in a part-time role next year for a couple of days a week as he transitions into a new area of ministry. Uh, why is this happening? Uh, essentially, as most of you know, Kurt uh, was diagnosed with early-onset Parkinson's uh, around about three years ago. We uh, always knew that the time would probably come when uh, it, things would get a little bit hard for him to continue at the same pace that he's been at for many, many years. And, uh, and so with Kurt, uh, Kurt's great desire both to keep serving the church well and serving his family well, it seems to be that this is the time for him to kind of step away from full-time uh, work with us here at uh, St. Matt's and Wild Street um, and to move into a new area of ministry. And so next year will be a year for him to transition into that as he continues to work part-time with us here at Wild Street. Uh, can I say, friends, we, we really want you to be praying for Kurt and Kelly and for their kids, Caleb, Elijah and Grace, um, as they go through this time of transition. Uh, they are wonderful servants of God and we've been very blessed and continue to be blessed by their ministry amongst us. Um, Kurt is going to be on Zoom this evening after church, uh, have a chance to chat to him, maybe you've got some questions you want to ask him, uh, he'll be on Zoom, so stick around after church for Zoom this evening uh, and chat to Kurt then and, uh, and he'll be able to kind of give you some more information if that's going to be helpful. I'm going to pray now, pray for Kurt and Kelly and the kids, but pray also for us uh, as we do what Kurt would want us to be doing now, not focusing on him, but focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, so let's do that, let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your love of us. Now, Father, we thank you for uh, your servant, Kurt and Kelly, and we thank you for their three children, Caleb, Elijah and Grace. We thank you, Father, for the blessing of so many years together in fellowship and ministry partnership here at Wild Street and St. Matthew's. Father, we, are, we love them and we are so thankful that you have uh, given us a, the privilege of being able to work side by side for the cause of Christ over these years and that we will continue to be able to do that. We want to pray for them, Lord God, as they uh, transition into uh, a new area of ministry, particularly as Kurt uh, continues to care for both his family, his health and his concern for the, the congregation down at St. Matthew's. We pray, Lord God, that you would um, bless them, that you would use them, that you would be with them as they make these transitions, that their hope and their trust and their confidence would be in you. And we pray, Lord God, for we who have been and continue to be so well served, that we would be prayerful for them, that we would be seeking to do all that we can to support and enable them as they move into this new part of uh, life and ministry that God has in store for them. And so, Father, we commit them to you and give you thanks for them all. And we pray for ourselves now, Father, that you would um, help us to be able to clear our minds of the distractions that might be around us, uh, the things that are in our minds that have got to happen next week. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to focus on your word now. 
and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we've uh, been working through this glorious book of Ephesians for more than uh, a term now. Uh, can I say the great preacher John Stott once said that if he, if he was ever going to commence a new ministry in a new church, uh, he would start by preaching through the book of Ephesians. Uh, because Ephesians is a great place to really understand the big picture of God's purposes and plans for his world, for the church, and for our lives. Now, what is that big picture? Well, Paul tells us, we've seen it over and again, in chapter 1, verse 10 of Ephesians, that all things in heaven and on earth are being brought under the lordship, the rule of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, if your purposes or your plans or your agenda for your life don't come under the lordship of Jesus, if they're not worked out in line with his agenda, then they're simply out of place. See, Paul actually wants us to understand what God is doing so that we can submit ourselves to his agenda and be part of the glorious thing that God is doing in our world. And so chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians, as we've worked through it, they outline what has been called, if you like, God's reunification project. God's eternal plans for all humanity come together in Jesus Christ. And sin... Our rebellion against God, actually our sin expresses our hostility towards God and tears apart the fabric of our relationship with him and also with each other. But in Jesus, we've seen that God makes peace with us. He reunites us with himself and he empowers right relationships with each other. And so it's a glorious picture of reunification that we see in the first three chapters of Ephesians. God demonstrating his triumphant wisdom in the heavenly realms in his church that he brings together from all nations and peoples. And then chapters 4 to 6, the last half of the book, look a lot different. But it's not that kind of God forgets his cosmic reunification project in the second half of Ephesians. Rather, what he's doing is he's applying it. Now, here is where, if you like, the theological rubber of Ephesians chapter 1 to 3 hits the proverbial road. Uh, here's where theology gets traction in our personal lives. Why? Well, because here's where the Apostle Paul takes us to the sharp end of what it means to live as the church. But not just when we gather, but as we obey Christ in our families and in our workplaces. What does God's power in the church look like? Well, it's both on the one hand absolutely extraordinary and on the other, completely ordinary. I mean, we've gone, if you like, in this, this book of Ephesians, we've gone from the eternal cosmic plans of the God of the universe to the nitty-gritty moments and realities of our daily lives. See, our homes, our work, are places where we need to walk wisely as we understand what the will of the Lord is. And even if you're not a parent, which is an area that we're going to be thinking about a little bit tonight, we're all responsible for speaking the truth to one another in love so that the whole body reaches maturity. And so can I say, uh, we need each other's godly wisdom and love to keep understanding these things and being able to speak them to each other. And you can be very helpful to, to those of us uh, who are trying to be godly parents um, and members of the church in these particular areas. Well, can I uh, say, let's get into the passage itself, uh, which is all about living as to the Lord 
or living out of reverence for Christ, as Paul keeps putting it. Now, let's just remind ourselves of the section that we're looking at and, and the context here. We're going to pick it up at chapter 5, verse 18. And he says there, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit-filled life that enables or empowers a Christian to live as to the Lord, which includes, notice there, uh, chapter 5, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Or chapter 6, verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters just as you would obey Christ. And verse 21 of chapter 5 has just told us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, just as Christ, who is equal with the Father, submitted to his Father's will. The verse 21 of chapter 5 is a hinged verse here. It's linked to what Paul has just been saying beforehand. In other words, submitting to one another is a part of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. But it also acts as an introduction to the instructions that follow for husbands and wives, parents and children, and slaves and masters. Uh, submitting to one another doesn't mean we're just all kind of willy-nilly submitting to each other all the time, like when you know, two Christians kind of approach a doorway together at the same time, and one says, after you, and then after you, no, after you, no, after you. No, you, I sit, it's, it's not that kind of submitting to one another. Uh, submission to one another in the context here is, well, it best refers to submission to appropriate authorities, not mutual submission, not submission to everyone. My dad, for example, until recently was a very powerful man. Uh, he would command the submission of many people every day, well, at least in school times. Uh, that is, my dad was a lollipop man at a public school. doesn't sound that powerful, does it? But if Gladys Berejiklian drove up to my dad and he asked, him, and, and, and he asked her to stop, I take it she would submit. Now, day by day, uh, my dad submits to Gladys Berejiklian as she gives health, of, health guidelines and asks, asks the public to take uh, her advice and operate in certain ways. He submits to her leadership. But if she drove up to my dad and he asked her to stop at a children's crossing, then she would submit. She doesn't lose her dignity in doing so. It's about good order in relationships. There'd be no point in Gladys running through my father because she's more powerful, running down a child. That would be chaos. In other words, Paul is spelling out what it means to submit to one another. Believers whose lives have been filled by God's Spirit will be marked by submission with the relationships that God has set up. Parents don't submit to children and masters don't submit to slaves in this context. The submission that is required is what is good and needed for these particular relationships. Now, part of submitting is for Christians to realise that there will always be someone over us that we need to submit to. And so, uh, when you submit, it's not making a statement of superiority, that one is necessarily greater than the other. It's an issue of relationship. It's how we relate as God's people out of reverence for Christ for the sake of unity and to bring glory to God. And we saw that, I think, very helpfully last week in relation to 
husband and wife. Now let's think about how it now in relation to children and parents and slaves and masters. Uh, and I know that, um, you know, there would, uh, may not be many parents amongst us tonight. There's more children perhaps, but one day you might be a parent as well as a child. Uh, so let's, let's have a look at the passage here. Paul tells us that there are expectations on both children and parents. So let me just read from chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now there was a survey taken in Australia about, uh, about 20 years ago now, so some time ago, but it asked the question, what is it that you aspire to in life? 46% of people indicated that what they most aspired to was a fulfilling and stable family life. The problem is, of course, is that, that it seems to elude so many. Perhaps the issue uh, is sometimes what we're aiming at in that space. And Paul is talking here about children obeying and honouring their parents. Now, perhaps the first thing to notice here is who Paul is speaking to. Now, parents often read this and they think it's a command to them to make their children obey them. But it's not that, notice. Uh, this is a command to children. Now, clearly, Paul expected that as the letter he had written to, to the Ephesian church was being read out, that the children would be there in church listening. And it's they who are deliberately addressed here, which is quite radical, really, because in ancient Roman society, children had no place or importance. But in Christ, everyone has equal dignity and importance. See, children were responsible members of the church. God calls on children to obey their parents. It's actually a part of their Christian discipleship. When children honour and obey their parents, they honour and obey God. Just as our rebellion towards our parents reflects our rebellion towards God. But there's another side to the ability of a child to obey. I mean, if there are expectations on children obeying and honouring parents, there are expectations on parents for raising their children appropriately. Now have a look there at verse 4 of chapter 6. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How will a child know God's concern? that they obey their parents unless their parents fulfil their obligation to raise their children in the training and instruction of the Lord. Here is where a parent's obligation clearly lies. Uh, if you're a parent, especially a father, God has given you primary responsibility to teach your children about God and his ways. Not the kids' church teacher, not the youth group leader, but you. Now notice what Paul says, raise children who are obedient to their parents in the Lord. Notice he doesn't say anything about raising doctors or engineers or lawyers. Now presumably that's nowhere near as important as obedient children who honour their parents and are disciplined and instructed in the knowledge of the Lord. What are the reasons that Paul gives? Well, first, because it's right. God has ordained that parents 
should raise children and that children should obey them. But children learn that it's right only when their parents instruct them about God. They're fathers. We need to take responsibility for our children's Christian growth and understanding. Don't leave it all to your wife. Well, secondly, it's uh, the first command, Paul says, with a promise. That is, the promise going back to the Old Testament that God made that for Israel it would go well for them and that they would live long in the promised land. Well, the idea of the promise, uh, because this promise has now been um, broadened out to those who are believers, but more generally, the idea behind the promise is that family solidarity is the basis of societal solidarity and longevity. If the family as the basic unit works, it has natural flow-on effects in society. Break down the family, break down society. We live in a society that's trying to break down elements of the family. We need to see what God says is so important about this. Alongside the intention that children living at home will obey their parents is the injunction for children to show honour. Now, the honouring of our parents uh, isn't set aside when we... uh, Sorry, it's not linked to age. uh, It's uh, linked to relationship. So the command to honour our parents isn't kind of set aside when we leave home or when we're grown-ups. It actually remains our responsibility to honour our parents and, I might add, our parents-in-law. Some wise advice was given, once given to me in terms of honouring my ageing parents. Uh, our parents, often they've had a lifetime of responsibility, of holding the family together, of being needed and relied upon. And it can be very difficult for our parents once the kids have all left home. I mean, all of a sudden, they can feel as though they have become obsolete, as though they are no longer needed by their kids who are off making their way in life. It's a difficult thing for a parent. The person who gave this wise advice to me actually aimed to ring his mum and dad every week and ask their advice about something. He not only communicated with them, it actually showed them that he still valued them. He respected their opinion and wisdom. And it didn't mean being bound to do whatever they said, but it was an expression of honour towards them. And you might have some other ways of honouring your parents. But at the end of Paul's instructions, there's a special word to fathers here. And we need to remember back to what, and if you're a bloke, you may not be a father yet, but you need to hear this now. We need to remember back to what the basis of our new lives in Christ are. That is to imitate the love of God and Christ. And so therefore, in our discipline as fathers and instruction, we need to remember that we shouldn't just leave that to our wives, but we are not to provoke our kids. Paul says. Now there's a particular danger here. Fathers are to take care that they don't use their authority to stir up anger, to say or do things that anger their kids. See, Satan can use anger for his own ends. Mothers need to take note too. But there are so many ways that we can do it as fathers. For example, when we punish our children unjustly, when we won't listen to them, when we have hypercritical standards and expectations of them, when we're inconsistent in our expectations or discipline, when we give constant criticisms and put-downs or when we embarrass them in front of others, when we're unhappy with their performance, even when they do well. 
Your parents need to remember that they're functioning on God's behalf. It's the training and instruction of the Lord that we are giving and modelling. We're not operating on our own behalf. And we need to remember that when a child disobeys their parent, the problem is their heart attitude before God. But parents need to realise that if, when you're disciplining your child, you use manipulation, your sister did it right, or fear, you won't know it's hit you, bribery, I'll give you a lolly if you promise to be quiet, emotionalism, after all I've done for you, inconsistency, okay, just this once, then the parent's problem is their heart attitude before God. The goal is not control, that's your agenda. God's agenda is a child who delights to know and serve him. And so if you become angry that your child isn't doing what you want, then discipline becomes a problem between parent and child. But the fact is, it's a problem between the child and God. It's God who isn't being obeyed when you're not being obeyed. But if you're angry because you're not getting what you want, then your wrong motives will lead to wrong ways of disciplining and training your children in the Lord. Now, I speak as a father who has made his share of mistakes in this area. As parents, we should bring them up in love. Don't put them down. Bring them up. Well, in the last of these relationships uh, in this household code that Paul has been talking about, Paul talks about the new life of the Christian as it works out in the slave-master relationship. Now, probably the closest equivalent for us is our employer-employee relationship. Uh, Let's just pick it up, if we can, at uh, verse 5 of chapter 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Slavery was a societal fact in ancient Rome. Paul is not making a, a comment about whether it's right or wrong. It's just the situation that they lived with. It was part of the fabric of society. I mean, estimates have it that almost 50% of the population were slaves. Essentially, slavery constituted the workforce. And it wasn't just laborers and maids it also involved educated people people like doctors and teachers etc and the fact that paul addresses slaves here shows that they were accepted members of the church but also that they were people who had responsibility to live out their christian faith in their circumstances but they're not alone paul also has a word here for masters as well now there are two key principles i think that we need to remember in this passage firstly don't think that god favors the master there is no favoritism and then secondly both have responsibilities before god both slaves and masters fulfill their responsibilities as if obeying christ slaves may have an earthly master but masters on earth 
need to remember that they too have a master in heaven. And so whether you're a worker or an earthly master of others in some way, then you need to fulfill your role wholeheartedly, but you need to do it as to the Lord himself. For all Christian people, your ultimate boss is Christ, the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. And so therefore, whether you're a worker or a boss, act in a way that is consistent with your relationship with Jesus. And whether you're an employer or employee, both of you are performing your functions to the Lord himself. Now, there are a few implications to this truth. Uh, Workers, uh, the way that you treat your boss is a direct expression of your obedience to Christ. At its heart is our attitudes. Submitting to their authority is right, provided, of course, that they're not asking you to do something that disobeys Christ. I mean, Israel Folau, many of you will know of him, I think is a good example of someone who had to put obedience to Christ above that of his employer. And he was punished for his faithful witness. Now, that's something that we may have to be willing to accept in honouring Christ above all else. But our service, wherever it is we work, must be marked by respect, integrity, conscientiousness, working willingly and cheerfully to the best of our ability, just as you would obey Christ. It's possible, can I say, that our bosses are completely undeserving. But remember that in our hearts, we are seeking to do the will of God. Well, masters, on the other hand, are told to treat their slaves in the same way. Now, again, that's a shocking command for Paul's day. Paul's not saying that masters have to serve or obey their slaves or an employer, his employees. It's about their attitudes and actions that should be governed by their relationship with Christ, their Lord. Now, remember, remember the two key principles. There's no, first, no favoritism with God. Second, both are, acceptable, sorry, both are accountable before God. Both will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Both slave and master, boss and worker, have the same master in heaven who cares for both, who will hold both accountable, who will reward both. And so bosses aren't to misuse their authority and power. They're not to manipulate or demean or threaten those they're over. Both are to serve or to lead wholeheartedly, but do it as to the Lord himself. Well, being spirit-filled will always show itself in terms of our relationships. Uh, But Paul's not talking about anything new here. The reality is that in each relationship that Paul has addressed, he is simply driving us back to the core concern of the Ephesian letter. God is uniting all things under Christ. And the church is at the centre of his plan. United through the death of Jesus to save us. United as the body of Christ. That is to imitate our Saviour and declare to the heavenly realms the wisdom of God. Not losing heart in these present evil days, but standing firm together. Growing to maturity in our faith and into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so in some of the most significant relationships we operate in, the Apostle makes it clear that the means God has provided to maintain that unity, those means are both authority and submission. 
neither are dirty words. It's quite clear from these passages that God is for authority, but against authoritarianism. Jesus Christ is our model of authority. It's an authority to serve sacrificially. It's an authority that when exercised appropriately promotes unity in our significant relationships and in the church as a whole. And God is also for submission to appropriate authorities for the sake of good order, for the sake of unity. I think the thing that I was reminded of last week most is that God is always good. His ways are always good for us and his kingdom. And so while we uh, come to this end of this talk this evening, and there's lots of questions that might be still running around your head. Uh, we don't have a Q&A tonight, but if you've got a question, and just jot it in on the Connect card there so that we might be able to get back to you at some point and um, you know, answer that if we possibly can. I'm going to pray, uh, and then uh, we're going to also continue in prayer. But let me lead us first in prayer, having heard God's word tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word to us. Father, we want to be people who are filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, living in such a way that declares to the, to the world above, to the heavenly realms, the wisdom of God in bringing all things together in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for those significant relationships that we find ourselves in. Help us to live in such a way that it brings honour and glory to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And friends, we're going to continue now in prayer.